And may the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. These days we don't very often use the word penultimate. Perhaps if you're writing an English dissertation in college you might, but usually we don't go around talking that way, and it simply means the second last. Say the penultimate verse is the second last verse. Uh, This probably is my penultimate service with you as your bishop. It doesn't mean it may be, it doesn't mean, please God, it's the last, the second last time I will ever be with you. Uh, But uh, as I wind down and Bishop Charlie takes over, of course, we uh, uh, rationalize our time and uh, I come again in October for the clergy retreat and that could be then the last opportunity I will have before uh, the new diocesan takes over on the 1st of July. Whether it is that or isn't the penultimate, uh, it is nevertheless a wonderful occasion once again to be with you here at Holy Trinity Anglican Church. Today I have the added advantage of after this service going to to St. Bridget of Kildare in, in Medway, which is, as I understand it, still one of the churches for which uh, you are responsible here at Holy Trinity. I thank you for your outreach in planting church in different places. When one comes to near the end of anything, one starts to reminisce over the past. From the first time when I got off the bus in Framingham and was met by uh, Don and, and, and by Steve, and brought to Union Street uh, to a, a congregation I knew not of. I didn't know a single one of you, except when uh, Father Michael uh, and his wife and baby girl, Sarah, uh, came around the corner. And before long, not only did I feel at home with them again, because obviously I had known them, but I felt very much at home with you. And this has been my home in the United States of America uh, for all these years since then. And wonderful are the memories I have. I think, and I was spent a long time thinking about this this morning, what would be the most precious memory here? Precious memory of meeting so many people, of seeing you again, uh, you know, after I've been away for a few months, those things. But I think really most precious memory, it came that Maundy Thursday when I spent Holy Week and Easter with you uh, up at the chapel in Union Street and this great wooden cross was put on the floor and after we confessed our sins, one by one, everyone in the congregation picked up the hammer that was presented to them, picked up a nail and drove it into the cross. Symbolic that we were nailing our sins to the cross of Jesus and through that cross, that cross only, those sins 
could be washed away. That's deep and it's precious, and I haven't had a Monday, a Monday, Thursday, or Good Friday service since when I haven't thought of it and recalled it. In the book of Exodus, Moses is leading the people of Israel at God's command out of the land of bondage, out of Egypt where they had been kept as slaves, into a land that in their symbolic language would be flowing with milk and with honey, a land to which they could look <coughs> forward to possessing forever, a homeless people finding a home, a churchless people finding a church, and I'm not talking about a church building, because as you wandered more and more away from the church that was your home, again, not talking about the building, you found solace in coming together under the dictions of Holy Scripture into your promised land. As they traveled to the promised land, the Israelites had many, many afflictions. There were 40 years doing it. And during that time, there were plagues and difficulties. And perhaps the most potent one of all is when they came to a certain place and they found that there were poisonous snakes, scorpions and snakes there, poisonous, venomous animals who would bite the people. And when the people were bitten, they would die. No second chance. Got the snake bite, you had it. And the people came to Moses and said, what was the point of leading us out of Egypt where we were safe into on this journey where now we are all going to probably be eaten, uh, poisoned by snakes before we ever get another mile further. And Moses prayed to God, what can I do? These people shouldn't be dying this way. They gave up too much. They've suffered too much. And God told Moses what to do. He says, take a serpent of brass. Hammer out the image of the thing that, was, that is biting you and put that brass serpent upon a pole and stick the pole in the ground. And whenever a person gets bitten by a poison snake, let them come and look upon that brass one on the pole, that image of one that has been high and lifted up, and they will be cured simply by looking to that image on top of the pole. <clears throat> it is not hard to see the symbolism. In fact, Jesus saw the symbolism. He said to his followers long before the crucifixion, he says, but I, just as Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness to heal those bitten by the fiery serpents, so I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all people unto me. I will heal them. When you are bitten by the fires of the evil one, when you are, uh, symbolically speaking, bitten, so you fall into sin, when Satan tempts you into sin, and Satan is the master at tempting you into sin, because Satan wants you for himself in the same way Christ wants you for himself. And all of us know the power of sin and how sometimes with the best intentions we still fall into it. 
and we would have no hope whatever were it not for what happened on that first Good Friday when the Son of Man, the Son of God, was nailed to the cross. The cross was driven into the ground. You could look upon it. And you look upon in your memory that cross today. You know it is through that cross and what happened on it and that alone by which you can have those sins washed away. Back in the 1960s, there were several uh, movies came out based on uh, things pertaining to Holy Scripture. You know, Samson and Delilah, one of the more famous ones, and uh, uh, um, Quo Vadis, and the robe in particular, which preceded, I think, Demetrius and the Gladiators, but this is not a, a course in, in movies. As some of you around my age will remember them. But in, in the robe, uh, Demetrius, who was the uh, centurion at the crucifixion, is standing by the cross, waiting for the body to die, waiting for Jesus to die, so he can go back to the barracks, so he can go off duty, and he can't go till that's done. And as he's standing there talking, as only Cecil B. DeMille could do it, uh, this blob of blood comes from the figure on the cross and hits him on, strikes his hand. And here on his hand is this big red blood stain. And he reaches out to, to wipe it off. And even something like Lady Macbeth, long after the murder, she still felt that the blood was on her hand, even though she said, a little water cleanses of the deed. But I won't go down that road either, no. <laughs> Tempting as it is. Uh, uh, later, as Christ dies... Hollywood depicts it quite accurately that a great, a great storm takes place. The, the heavens are riven, the earth does quake, and all of those things happen. And the, this movie in particular, and I still remember it after more years than I'd like to remember, and when uh, I can't remember a lot of other things that happened then, I can remember this, the great rainstorm, drenching rain came down, and here's Demetrius who had just been responsible for putting Jesus to death, looking up on that figure on the cross. And the rain is wrenching down, and is washing the blood away. But it's going down and taking the blood at the foot of the cross and forming a river and throwing it out into the world. And it was so symbolic that the blood of Christ can cleanse the whole world. All we have to do is turn to him. And today the church keeps the feast of the Holy Cross. I guess the real feast of the Holy Cross really is, is, is Good Friday. But on Good Friday we think of the person on the cross and today we think of the emblem of the cross. The emblem of the cross which has become so sacred to most of Christianity that has marked our churches and marked our burial grounds and marked our schools and so many things. And now today, if you live in the province of Quebec in Canada uh, and you work for the government, you can't wear a cross around your neck. And when you listen to some of the pop videos and see someone like Madonna, 
who is living anything but the life laid out for us by Christ in the Scripture, often in her costume, when she has costume on, <coughs> with a huge cross around her neck. And whenever I see that, I, I, just, I just cringe at it, that the, the symbol of our salvation is being desecrated in this particular way. And the Christian people who are sitting by and applauding her and giving her a standing ovation of those things is another story altogether. The irony of it is, you see, that the cross would have the same symbolism as the electric chair or the gallows. It was a place of execution where someone was put to death, usually for something they did wrong. And because someone was put to death on it who never ever did any wrong, the spotless Son of God died on that cross, it has become a symbol that is so very dear and so very precious to the followers of Jesus that we must be very careful that we do not let it be desecrated when we have some way of preventing it. Often it is out of our hands except for us to say, as they said, as Jesus said on the cross, uh, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And many of them have never even thought about it. It just looks nice. It's a nice ornament to wear. We are reminded today that it is only through the cross that we can be healed, that we can be cleansed, and it is also through the cross and the cross only that we can become one. As Jesus prepared for his death, prayed over and over, but particularly in that prayer re recorded in St. John 15, Father, I pray that they will be one, just as you and I are one, Father. I in them and they in me and we all together, making up a oneness, because whenever that oneness is shattered, the body of Christ is weakened. Every parish which is a family, and which strives for oneness, will come under great temptation to disrupt that unity. You here at Holy Trinity have been spared many years from having much of that at all, but there are signs of it. And I'm not going to go any further than that. I spent most of my visit here talking to various people. All I want to do today is to you, the whole family, clergy and lay, to call upon again, you again the image of what made the cross so precious and know that it was done for you and for me and it was done with the intention of making us one, one in him. The... the uh, in Canada, the United Church of Canada, which was a mixture of uh, Methodists and Presbyterians and Church of Christ, they call themselves, when they formed one church out of those three in 1926, they chose as their motto, which is on their uh, seal and everything else, 
the words of Christ, that they may be one. We left a bondage where we felt Scripture wasn't being properly proclaimed and where it was being misinterpreted or diluted to mean something else. Don't let the effectiveness of what we did be watered down by falling out over many things, I'm not saying all of them, many things which in the long run don't matter at all. The important thing is that you committed yourselves as a parish when you came together as Holy Trinity Anglican Church to have as your first and foremost activity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ here to Marlborough and the surrounding area. And how you proclaim that will be judged certainly on what you say and how you preach it, but it will also be judged on what you do and how you live. And none of us want to see the body of Christ fractured any more than it is. And so I'm calling upon you, my friends, and I'm not preaching gloom and doom at all. I'm preaching hope. I want you to be aware that the devil didn't like what you did when you formed yourselves into a parish. And the devil doesn't like what you're doing now, but he gets some comfort if he sees you falling out amongst yourselves. And therefore, to spend, uh, to do a novena, I'll leave it up to Father Michael to decide when you're going to start it. A novena is very biblical. It remarks the nine days that took place between the ascension of our Lord and Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And since that time, the church has often set aside a nine-day period to concentrate our prayer on one thing and one thing only. And I'm asking you, when you keep that novena, and some of you may have to keep it at different times because of other commitments, when you, commit it, when you do it, when you keep that novena, that you will reflect in every worship, every Bible study, everything you do, the words of Jesus that they may be one. I urge you to do that. Gone are the days when the bishop could say, thank God they're gone. As of such and such, you will do this until such and such. Now you must decide. It must be something that comes not imposed upon you, but from your heart. And each of you will do your utmost to repair anything that is broken, not to let the breaks spread where it takes years to overcome them, but nip them in their bud and to know that by the blood that flowed from the cross of Jesus Christ, that same blood comes into your body this morning in a, in, in a different way, in a sacramental way, in the Holy Eucharist, and is cleansing you. Don't let it have been an exercise in vain or an exercise by rote. You do it because you're here on Sunday. You do it because you sincerely desire, you sincerely want the Church of Christ to be one, the message of Christ to be coming from a united body, and that our family will be fully united and obsessed, not with what separates us, but obsessed with what we can do as the united body going forward in his name under the banner 
of the Holy Cross. To God be the glory. Amen.